For some reason, people have been fascinated with the last words that a person speaks before they die. Uh, You can go on the internet and use Google or some other search engine, and you'd be amazed how many different sites you can go to that has listed uh, the last words or the dying words of someone who is famous. This past week, I was just perusing the internet and looking at all the different sites that had all these different words, and I thought about putting a lot of them on the screen here to kind of set the stage, but I was afraid we were going to run out of time. But there's two that that kind of pop into my head that I guess because I have some interest in the individuals, but uh, I don't know how many of you know what the last words that we have record of that Elvis Presley spoke of before he died. Uh, This is according to his... A live-in girlfriend at the time who spoke to him last before he died, but uh, the night that he died, he was having trouble sleeping, and so he told his girlfriend, and he says, I think I'm going to get out of bed and go into the bathroom and read for a little bit. Those are the last words he ever spoke to anyone. Frank Sinatra, who uh, was famous for recording a song that was entitled, I Did It My Way, the very last words he spoke, according to his family, were simply... Two words, I'm ruined. But the most famous last words that were ever spoken from a dying man were the last words that Jesus Christ spoke on this earth before he died. There is a sermon that I preach when I hold gospel meetings, and I've preached it here a couple of times down through the years. But the name of the sermon is Seven Statements from a Suffering Savior. And in that particular sermon, I talk about the seven last sentences that Jesus spoke before he died. I think most of us are familiar with them, but the last words that Jesus said before he uh, died was the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He turned to the thief that was on the cross and said, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. He turned to his mother and to uh, John and said, Woman, behold thy son, and son, behold thy mother. But then as he continued to be on the cross and as he began to die, he uttered the words, Eli, Eli, la la shabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he said, I thirst. And then he said, it is finished. And the very last words that we have recorded that our Savior spoke before he died was, Father, unto your hands I commend my spirit. And I think I preach sermons on those particular words because those words are very important. We're always interested in the last things that a person may have to say before they die, but how much more important must it be that we understand and appreciate the dying words of a Savior that was sent to this earth to die for each and every one of us. And as I thought about that, if the Savior, Jesus Christ's dying words were significant, How much more significant must it be the first seven statements that Jesus spoke when he rose from the dead? Think about that for a moment. Jesus died on the cross and was in the tomb for three days. And on that very first Lord's Day, that very first day of the week, Jesus Christ resurrected to die no more. What did he say? Do his words have any significance? 
I believe they have significance in the same way that his dying words had significance. His resurrected words also should have some significance. You see, the seven statements from a suffering Savior as he hung on the cross were significant words to a lost world. Everything that he said had something to do with the world and the message that he had for the world that he was dying for them. Beginning with the idea of the fact that he wanted his father to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing, to the very fact when he breathed his last, he understood that his father was completely in charge when he said, Father, unto your hands I commend my spirit. That was a message to a lost world, but I believe that the statements that he made after he rose from the dead were words to the redeemed. Words to His church. Words to the saved. A message that has significance for us today. So this morning we're going to spend some time talking about the first seven statements of a risen Savior. And I appreciate Jeff reading the first ten verses of John chapter 20, but in order for us to get the full flavor of what I want us to talk about, to fully set the stage, I'm going to pick up at verse 11. Jeff's already read the first ten verses of this chapter, and then I'm going to read the rest of the verses in this chapter, and then we're going to go through and make some points. But in order for us to fully appreciate these statements that Jesus made and fully appreciate the points that we're going to try to make this morning, I think it's important that we read the entire text. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 20. I hope you have your Bibles either in print form or in phone form. And go ahead and place your marker there because this is where the lesson is coming from today. And as oftentimes is the case, when anyone is reading a long section of Scripture, our minds tend to wander. But let's try to fight against that this morning and listen to what happened immediately after Jesus rose from the dead. As I've already said, the first ten verses set the stage that He has risen. But now let's start looking at the events that transpire about the different things that He said once He rose from the dead. Beginning at verse 11 of John chapter 20, it says, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto him, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day... At evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. 
And when he had said so, so said, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the door being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then he saith unto Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet believe. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now I appreciate you bearing with me as I read that, but I think it's very important that we understand the scene and the setting, that we understand why these words came about, and that way we can appreciate more the significance of the first seven statements that Jesus made. Now, these statements that we're going to have on the board, oftentimes it's just a part of the statement, but it's the significant part of it that I want us to think about this morning. So let's look at the first seven statements of a risen Savior that comes from John chapter 1 and going through the end of the chapter. First thing that we see The very first words that Jesus ever spoke after he rose from the dead was, Woman, why are you crying? I want you to think about that for a moment. The very first words Jesus spoke after he rose from the dead was to a woman in a garden. We know Mary was in a garden because of the setting of the tomb and also the fact that she thought that the person that was talking to her was a gardener. But let that sink in just for a moment. The very first words that Jesus spoke when he rose from the dead was to a woman in a garden. Do you catch the significance of that? Do you realize the symbolism of that? going all the way back to the beginning of creation. There was another woman, the very first woman, that was in a garden and someone else asked her a question. And the way she responded to that question brought tragedy into the world, brought death into the world, brought sin into the world. And here we have the resurrected Lord once again, And he's standing here in the garden and he's speaking to the very first woman, the very first person that he's going to speak with those resurrected lips. And he's in a garden once again 
and he makes a statement that is so profound. He asks the question, why are you weeping? Now balance those two together for a moment. The way that Eve answered the question that was asked to her in that first garden, that first woman, brought into the world all the heartache and pain and tears and crying and weeping that the world has ever known. And Jesus comes into the garden and talks to the very first woman that He ever speaks to and almost asks a theoretical question. He says, why are you weeping? Well, if we were to answer that question for Mary, uh, obviously she was weeping because of the fact that someone she loved was dead, she thought. Obviously, his body was missing, but her tears were very real because of the fact someone she loved very dearly was dead, and she was grieving over it. Think about how many tears and how many people have cried down through the centuries down through the eons of time, because someone they loved very dearly had died. Someone they may have spent their entire life with was now separated from them. Perhaps it was a child that they only known for a few days, but now that child is gone. Perhaps it was a close friend. Perhaps it was a spouse. Perhaps it was someone who was famous. But down through the years... Tears after tear after tear has been shed because someone was dead. In fact, the Bible even tells us that Jesus was at the tomb of someone he cared a lot about, a man by the name of Lazarus. And when Jesus saw the tears that were being shed for someone who had died, the Bible gives us the shortest verse in the entire Bible. It simply says, Jesus wept. But now do you catch the significance of what Jesus meant when he asked her that question? I'm the resurrected Lord. I have come to conquer death. The very fact that I'm now standing before you and I'm asking you this question points out the most significant thing for all of history. Woman, why are you weeping? Don't you know I have finally conquered the pain and the crying of death. Is it no wonder? Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, John tells us the same John who wrote this gospel, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And the verse says, because there shall be no more death. The resurrected Lord proves to Mary and proves to the entire world that we as Christians have no need of fearing death. We as Christians, we may cry at the graveside of a loved one uh, because we're going to miss that person and not have that person in our life, but we don't weep as one who has no hope. The very first words that Jesus ever spoke proclaimed to the church and to the redeemed But those of us who belong to Him, we don't need to fear death. We have no reason to cry because of death, because we know Jesus has conquered death once and for all. But there's another statement we need to look at this morning. The very second statement that He basically said was, Mary, 
We don't understand fully why Mary didn't recognize him at first. I don't know if it was because of the darkness of the area she was in. I don't know if it was because her tears had so clouded her eyes she could not appreciate who it was. But once Jesus spoke her name, she knew exactly who he was. Maybe it was said in a way that, that was a command that, that she needed to recognize who he was, or maybe it was said in such a way that it was a familiar way that Mary had heard Jesus speak her name so many times before. But I think the significance of this particular idea here that we see in his second statement is the fact that the resurrected Lord knew her by name. For some reason, there's been a discussion among religious scholars and even in the church down through the years of whether or not uh, we, when we are resurrected, well, we know one another. In fact, uh, there's even a book uh, that Guy in Woods wrote called, Shall We Know One Another in Heaven? But here we have the resurrected Lord, somebody who was dead before, but God rose again, had him rise again on the third day. He is a resurrected person. And he knows Mary by name. And I think that is significant because of the fact that tells us that when we are resurrected, whether it be uh, on the judgment day or whether it be because the Lord has returned, that we're going to know one another in heaven. I can't explain how that's going to work and all the different things that go along with that, but I do understand and appreciate the fact that here was a resurrected person And he knew Mary by name. Oftentimes we'll read the story about the transfiguration that took place where uh, Jesus uh, was glorified by God and, and on that Mount of Transfiguration there was both Elijah and Moses standing by his side. And the implication from the text is that Jesus knew that that was Moses resurrected and he knew that that was Elijah resurrected. But the point that we sometimes miss as we see these three men walking and talking together that somehow or another, the disciples knew who they were. Somehow or another, the disciples knew that that was Moses that Jesus was talking to, that that was Elijah that Jesus was talking to. And I've often pondered, how did they know that? I mean, they didn't have any pictures of Moses. They didn't have any videos of Elijah. But they so knew that that's who they were that Peter, uh, in his effort to give them honor, he says, well, let's build three special shrines, one to Moses and one to Jesus and one to Elijah. And, of course, the voice came down from heaven that said, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. But yet there's the significance of the fact, how in the world did they know that that was Moses? I don't think he was wearing a name tag or anything. But I think it helps illustrate the fact that in the resurrection we shall know one another. And as I think about that and I think about the significance of that, I think about the fact how that one day there's going to be a reunion like we have never ever experienced before in this world. A reunion where we get to see loved ones that are now gone from this earth. A reunion where people will be reunited with babies that maybe they had lost. Or maybe with grandparents or with spouses or with children. And what a reunion that will be. Maybe even somebody will say our names and will turn around and say, Look, you're, you're here. But I also think about the fact that here, sometimes on this earth in the church, 
that sometimes we treat people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ that we will spend eternity with in heaven. We get so caught up sometimes in pettiness. We get so caught up sometimes in unkindness. Yet one day we're going to be spending eternity with these people and we'll know them by name. When the resurrected Lord said the words, Mary... He was letting her know that even though he was dead and now lives again, he knew her by name. And I think that is significant. But notice what he tells her next. He says, instead of crying, Mary, go instead to my brothers and tell them. He says, Mary, you don't need to be crying any longer. And though Mary didn't ask the question, we can ask it for her today. Well, why, Lord? Why do I need to stop crying? Well, Mary, here's the answer. I rose from the dead. I have a message you need to go tell people. I died on the cross and paid the wages of sin, but now because of the stone being rolled away from the tomb, I have risen here on this first day of the week, and now there is a message of the resurrection. There is a message of the fact that though we may die on this earth, we will live again. There is a message of hope. There is a message of confident expectation. You need to go tell the world about that. When he said the word Mary, he was reminding her of the words of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 that we may not know what we shall be like when we get to heaven, but we know that we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And here is Mary now seeing the resurrected Lord. And so he's saying, listen, you don't need to cry any longer. I have risen from the dead. Go tell somebody about this. Give them that message. Paul reminds us that one day there's going to be a grand reunion in the sky. How the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise and we will all meet with Him together in the air and then live with Him forever. He says, Mary, there's no need to cry any longer because you have a message of hope, a message that has to be given to everyone. I have defeated the grave. I have defeated Satan. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Jesus Christ now has a message of hope for the entire world. The greatest fear that mankind fears is the fear of death. But Jesus says, you've got a message. You need to go tell them about it. But notice the next thing that he says. Remember in the text, Jesus appears to the disciples on the first day of the week. And there, the very first words that he utters to them is, Peace be with you. And then almost for emphasis sake, he says it again, Peace be with you. Here we have Jesus uttering one of the most important things about why he came to this earth. He came to this earth so that we can have peace. In fact, the Bible describes him as the Prince of Peace. 
But he wanted us to understand that because of the fact that he came to this earth and died on the cross and rose again the third day, that we can have peace with God and that we can have the peace of God. Peace instead of blame. Peace instead of fault finding. Peace for the troubled heart. Peace for the troubled conscience. Jesus Christ came to this earth and died and lives again because of the fact He wanted us to have peace. The peace that passeth understanding. The peace from coming to the understanding and the realization that Jesus Christ died to take away our sins. The peace that comes with the idea that no matter what happens to us in this life, we need to understand that this world is not our home. We're just simply passing through. The peace that He told His disciples before He left, He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. For in My Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. John chapter 14, the first three verses. In this life, we're always looking for peace. But Jesus says, I finally have brought the peace that you are needing. The peace for which the purpose I came to this earth. And so it's significant when he came to his disciples, the first group of people that he sees after talking to Mary He says not only this two times, but later on he's going to say it a third time. He says, peace be unto you. I'm running out of time, so let's move on. Notice after he has a discussion with the disciples and he proves to them, if you notice in the text, that he is indeed the resurrected Lord. In fact, uh, he shows them his hands and shows them his side, uh, making sure they realize this is indeed uh, the resurrected Lord. He says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. In other words, he's telling his disciples and he's telling us today that uh, we now have a job to do. The very fact that there's an empty tomb somewhere in Jerusalem reminds us of the fact that we have a responsibility to go tell the world that he lives. He lives! We need the world to know this. We need to let them understand and appreciate that not only did Jesus die for their sins, but He rose again from the dead. There's a lot of different religions out there today. They have a lot of different leaders and founders that they base their religion on, but only Christianity has a resurrected leader. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Confucius is dead. David Koresh is dead. Sun Young Moon is dead. But Jesus Christ is alive and He still is alive today, living and making intercession for us. We need to tell the world that. It's interesting in the same section of Scripture there, He says that He's going to give them the Holy Spirit so they can take this message to other people. To his apostles, he gave that in a miraculous way. But to us today, he has given us that message through the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 reminds us that all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. In other words, God's Word that's sitting on this pulpit is all we need to tell a lost and dying world. The most important message they'll ever hear. In fact, Jesus, before He ascended to His Father in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, He tells us to go preach the gospel to every living creature. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. To make people understand and appreciate that fact, we begin with the going and the preaching, but we use the Holy Spirit or God's Word to make them understand and appreciate the fact that they only need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He rose from the dead, but you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. He says, you now have a message. Now that my work is finished, I have risen from the dead. As my Father sent me with a mission, now I'm sending you. But then is a very significant passage, I think. Verse 27, where Jesus stands before Thomas, sometimes called Doubting Thomas, and he basically says, you don't believe I'm risen from the dead? I want you to put your finger here into the nail print of my hands. I want you to place your hand into my side where the spear went. Now this is a little side note here, and I, and I think it's significant. We give Thomas a lot of grief for being doubting Thomas, but do you realize if he hadn't asked the question about whether or not he could see the nail prints of his hand, we would have never known how Jesus was fastened to the cross. This is the only place in the entire scriptures that tells us that Jesus was fastened to the cross by those nails. I know we sing songs about it. I know that we maybe have heard sermons about it. But this is the only place in the entire scripture. And it's found in the words of Thomas when he says, I won't believe until I see the nail prints in his hands. And that tells us how Jesus was fastened to the cross. But here's a more significant point. Why is Thomas doubting? Why did he need this proof when nobody else needed the proof? Well, here's the simple answer to it. He wasn't where he was supposed to to be when he needed to be there. Go back earlier and look what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. All of the disciples were assembled. Jesus came and spoke to them. By His presence, they believed in the resurrected Lord. But let me tell you somebody who wasn't there. His name was Thomas. Now, we don't know where he was. We don't know why he wasn't with the assembling of the disciples. We don't know why he um, was gone that day. We could conjecture and say maybe he had errands to run. Maybe he had to work that day. Maybe he had a sick wife at home. Maybe we don't know why he wasn't there. But for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there and it affected his faith. In fact, of all the disciples evidently at this time, He was the only one who didn't believe. And it's because he wasn't where he needed to be at the right time. I don't think that we're pushing this uh, significance too far when we think about the fact that when we purposely miss the assembling of the disciples, that we lose something. 
When we purposely decide not to be here on a Lord's Day or some other time when the saints are assembled, we lose something and it can have an effect upon our faith. Thomas was known as Doubting Thomas and it's all because of the fact he is singled out because of the fact that he was not where he needed to be to begin with. Is it no wonder the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 reminds us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is. But instead we should use this time to encourage one another, especially as we see the day approaching. In other words, the whole purpose of the assembly is to build us up to make us better Christians, to make us stronger Christians, to make us have our faith. A person who misses the assembly, though we may never call them by that name, but they fall into the same scope and the same realm as Downing Thomas. Because of the fact that he was not where he needed to be, he turned out to be a very special case. And Jesus finally had to tell him, Put your finger here. Well, let's look at the final thing that Jesus said, and the lesson will be yours. Notice the last words that we have recorded there in John chapter 20. And the summation of the seven things that Jesus said when he rose from the dead, he will say other things later on, but in parallel to the seven things that he said before he died, the seventh statement that he made was, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Playing off the words that he was telling Thomas, he started talking about some very important people. He started talking about you and me. In that statement, he's describing us. He's saying, Thomas, you had to have visible proof. Not only did you have to have visible proof, you had to have proof where you actually stuck your, stuck your finger in the nail prints and your hands in the side. But he's basically saying, there will be some people 2,000 years from now that are going to believe that I am the Son of God, that I did die on the cross, and I did rise from the dead. And they're going to be a very special group of people because they are going to be people who believe, though they have never, ever seen me. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Peter makes a, a statement in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, how that there are those that love him, yet they have never seen him. There are those who have seen him not, yet they believe. In other words, we today believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, even though we have never physically laid eyes on him, but we base, base this faith on the testimony of others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 3, Paul gives us what is the gospel in a nutshell. He says that according to the Scriptures, Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again the third day. And then he goes on and talks about how that he, she, he was seen of Mary and how that he was seen of the rest of the disciples and how there were 500 people who saw him at one time. And then there, were, there was James's brother. And then Paul says, and the last of those who saw the resurrected Lord was himself, the least of the apostles. 
In other words, the evidence has been made by eyewitnesses who maybe lived a long time ago, but yet they are eyewitnesses. John in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, he sets the stage for us as Christians in our faith when he says, The same Jesus whom I have seen, whom I have heard, and whom I have touched. He is the one who is resurrected from the dead. And so we have the evidence of eyewitnesses that tell us that yes, Jesus indeed was a real man and that He died and He rose again on the third day. In fact, the way this chapter ends, in John chapter 20, emphasizes that fact. That there are many other things that Jesus did in the presence of His disciples. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you may have life in His name. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Just out of curiosity, and I don't want to embarrass anybody, but how many people here believe that there was a man named George Washington that one day lived? How many people here, leave your hand up if you've ever seen him. He only lived a couple hundred years ago, but yet none of us have seen him. We've seen some pictures of him that maybe are correct representations or not. But the reason why we believe that George Washington was the very first president of these United States is because of the eyewitness testimony of other people. I wasn't there when he was inaugurated. I wasn't there when he died. But there are people who were, and they wrote about it. And I believe it. In the same way, John is telling us here at the end of this particular chapter, after giving us these seven statements from a resurrected Lord, he is telling us we are eyewitnesses. We heard these words. We put our fingers in the nail holes. We saw the resurrected Lord. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. As we close our lesson today, we are reminded of the words that Jesus spoke in John chapter 8 and verse 24, where He says, If you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. If we expect to spend eternity with the resurrected Lord, then we have to believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the resurrected Son of God. And that belief should cause us to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as Paul's already pointed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. The St. Paul points out to us in Romans, 7, Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, that we were the servants of sin, but we have obeyed from that heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto us, and now we become the servants of righteousness. The form of doctrine or the pattern or the similitude of doctrine that he's talking about is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel. When a person responds to the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, they do that as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, that a person dies like Christ dies to his old man of sin. He's buried in the watery grave of baptism for the remission of his sins, and then he rises to walk in newness of life. It's a pattern, it's a similitude, it's a form of the doctrine of the gospel that Jesus died and was buried, and as we talked about today, and was resurrected on that first day of the week. 
So if you want to obey that form of doctrine this morning, we want to give you that opportunity. And we hope we have said enough things today. As the song has talked about, we may not have seen him when he was on this earth, but we know whom we have believed. And we are persuaded that there is a man by, Jesus Christ, a man by the name of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again on that very special Sunday morning. Won't you come as together we stand and sing?